and welcome to the February edition of Metro Cinema Presents Close Up, the podcast in which we talk about some of our favourite selections from the Metro calendar month to come, and if we can, how that relates to cinema in a broader context. We're also a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, and you can find all sorts of wonderful podcast content over at albertapodcastnetwork.com. My name is Owen, I'm the projectionist at Metro Cinema, I also co-host the Metro Cinema Movie Trivia at the Tavern on White on the last Sunday of every month, and I have a radio show on CGSR. It's called the British North American Act of 1867. I must change the name because it's hard to say. Um, but it's on a Monday afternoon, 3 to 5. The music is excellent. You should listen to it. To my left. Hi, I'm William. Uh, I scoop corn at the Metro. That's about it. And you also attend the University of Alberta. That's true. I do attend And what the do you University do there, Alberta. William? Uh, I study. Yeah? And Just you know, anything? <laughs> yeah, just anything. I just walk into all the classrooms I can and just hope for the best, you know? Excellent. Uh, I'm Talisha. I'm a house manager and communication specialist at Metro, and I'm also at the university. Yeah, and what are you studying? studying? Uh, (laughs) (laughs) I'm double majoring in linguistics and English. That's going to be important later. It's not really. Well, to me it is, anyway. So I'm Shama. I am also at the U of A, but I teach and research there, mostly in cultural studies and kind of stuff about race and gender and anti-capitalism. Fantastic. And you're also uh, curating a series. Yes, I'm co-curating a series with Dr. Beth Capper at Metro Cinema called Working Hard, Hardly Working. So we have The Red Desert coming up on February 11th, so we'll talk about that a bit. Absolutely. And uh, so far you've had Tangerine, one of my favorite films of the decade. And then what was the other one? And 24 City. Oh, 24 City, yeah. yeah. Amazing. Okay. Uh, so, uh, as usual, we're just going to work through the calendar. We're going to start off right uh, on the 1st of February with a new release for us, although I think it was uh, made and released uh, initially last year. Uh, that is Harriet, uh, directed by Cassie Lemons, and uh, it's a biographical film about abolitionist and political activist Harriet Tubman, who was born into slavery but escaped eventually rescuing 70 or so people over the course of about 13 missions uh, using the network of anti-slavery activists known as the Underground Railroad. Uh, And during the American Civil War, she served as an armed scout and spy for the Union Army, and she was the first woman to lead an armed expedition in the war. She also guided the raid at Combahee Ferry, uh, which liberated more than 700 slaves, and in her later years, Tubman was an activist in the struggle for women's suffrage. Uh, truly a remarkable woman. As I said, it was written and directed by Cassie Lemons, who also made Eve's Bayou, Talk to Me, and Black Nativity. And, though, crucially, she was Bernie in Candyman, uh, who was uh, Helen's mate. Yeah, I don't think that Harriet Tubman's story is one that hasn't been told. Like, I think it's told kind of over and over again because people like to have heroes of history instead of, like, thinking about all the complicated ways that historical events come about. Um, that being said, there hasn't been a Hollywood biopic I think of Harriet um, that like with this kind of release and distribution so that's great in a lot of ways I know a lot of people who work in black studies who uh, have a lot of problems with this movie and say that it's like quite um, not just historically inaccurate but also kind of Hollywoodized and it yeah I mean Harriet Tubman was a badass and so definitely is like a great story you know to tell um But I think that, you know, this, even like this performance is being celebrated quite a lot. And so she was nominated for an Oscar. And I always am interested in how like the Academy likes to um, 
celebrate movies about black struggle that take place in the past. So it's like, oh yeah, look at how bad it was before. So like, don't think about how bad it is right now. So I don't know. I have really mixed feelings about Harriet, the film, even though, of course, like Harriet Tubman is amazing. She is, uh, she's played by Cynthia Erivo in the film, who you will probably recognize from uh, Bad Times at the El Royale. I think that's what it was called, which is a, a kind of like noirish thriller that came out sometime last year. And she kind of she plays a singer who's like the the kind of like lead counterpart to uh, Jeff Bridges' character, which is kind of amazing. But that it does have an interesting history. This film because the the script of it was originally written and owned by Disney, but they refused to make it. Uh, eventually relinquishing the rights to focus features. It was the first assignment of scriptwriter Gregory Allen Howard over 25 years ago, uh, who had studied the life of Tubman at Princeton, but it seems that Disney felt that the uh, film-going public wouldn't have any interest in a story about an African-American icon. Uh, and I think that speaks volumes about the moral mm-hmm. stance of a multinational media conglomerate like Disney, that it couldn't afford to divert from its path to global entertainment domination as a multi-billion dollar company. Yeah, I mean, Disney <laughs> Disney loves woke culture when it c- can make money, right? Oh, when it's trendy, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. yeah exactly. So, yeah. like, we're going to see lots of stuff happen in the next phase of Marvel movies that are, like, going to be marketed as breakthroughs and representation, but it's Absolutely, only because yeah. it's safe to do so now. Let's move on to the next one. We've already, actually, I've already spoken to Professor Robert Smith, who is curating a series called Bring on the Extraterrestrials. But I do know that also we all kind of like uh, had opinions about Arrival. Um, so let's have a chat about that. So in science fiction, there's usually like a baby at the end. And it's like that's the symbol of reproductive futurity. And so like... I actually, I mentioned this in class uh, this week, that even a movie like The Martian has, like, a couple with a baby because it's always, like, speculating another world, and then you need that. And in Arrival, the baby comes first. And the baby, well... Well, it's a f- you, you learn yeah. pretty quickly what happens. To the, yeah, yeah, and yeah. so... Um, just that is such a departure from generic convention. And the other thing, like, in terms of language, I was thinking about... Um, Lots of kind of theories of of language, say, of like structuralism and post-structuralism are about the kind of phallic signifier and like phallogocentrism and stuff. Maybe you heard those terms um, in school. But this is the most um, vaginal film I've ever seen. (laughs) And so it really makes me think about like irrigere and feminine écriture and just the ways that like the writing is like circles, like the whole, like you think that the spaceship maybe looks a bit phallic, but it's actually not. There's like a canal that they have to go up. There's just all of these ways that it's really like, um, like formally about disrupting this idea that like signification is phallic. And so I really liked that about it. Um, And also like the disruption of linear time is also like a resistance to kind of like, you know. Yeah, that was really interesting too, because the the visual language itself is circle based, Mm -hmm. which, you know, implies kind of this, (laughs) not right. (laughs) It's just like a continuous thing. Um, And it's very much not continuous. Also, just the idea, I guess, of knowing what's going to happen and making those choices to make them happen. Like, it's kind of like, is it worth it to do this? Yeah. And we, so it's very much about, like, in some ways, the the choices we make, would we make them if we knew what happens? Like, does that, is it the choice that defines us or the, that sort of thing? So Yeah, it does, it does, does knowing 
what she ends up knowing and learning this language and, and way to perceive time fundamentally alter the her humanity and mm -hmm. there's a certain inevitability to human nature as well and i kind of like that duality in the film i mean implicitly isn't the film also sort of like deterministic in its conception of like action and humanity at which point there is no real sort of like moral value associated with actions because they're always already being taken up as a result of like the deterministic way in which actions operate as assumed by like the language that gets set up what does it matter anymore if like everything that happens is already going to happen well, well there's I still choice there's a lot of dystopic sci-fi i mean this mm. one maybe it's not like it's going to end in a, a great utopia or something but it kind of has more of a hopeful oh absolutely bittersweet to hopeful Des ending despite despite the thing the thing that happens that we haven't mentioned which is yeah. you, you find out that basically i mean i don't know if we should say Let's not. Go see Let's go, go, go see it. Wow. Come, come and see Continue it. this discussion but, but in the lobby when you come <laughs> see it. Yeah. We'll all Absolutely. be there recording yes. an after show. Yeah. No, uh, we won't. Something happens that is bad and tragic for anyone that would have to go through such a thing. Um, but there is still a kind of uh, um, overriding message of hope. And I think that's an important thing. Also, the and soundtrack is pretty good. Mm -hmm. soundtrack is amazing. Johan Johansson, Johansson, Johansson is one of his last soundtracks actually he score he did a, he did a score for a blade runner 2049 after that but it was rejected eventually um done by hans zimmer and then yeah i think that maybe his last soundtrack was mandy just after that really I yeah thought there was something else but it might there not have been a soundtrack one. it might have just been a yeah there, there was it was well, it was one of his last ones anyway but um yeah it's amazing unfortunately it wasn't selected for an oscar nomination because of the use of uh, max richter song at the end which is very recognizable either way like, it's uh, amazing so i feel like the the bureaucratic meddling of the academy and it's endless tumultuous difficulties is a great segue <laughs> well that was seamless and beautiful let's move Thank on you. to the oscars i'm work so i'm working on an article right now on joker and hustlers um for the conversation and hustlers was completely shut out yeah. i think and yeah. i thought that was like I one of the smartest that. so in the class that that i keep gesturing to because talisha's also in it uh that doesn't really work on radio but uh. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well no i've mentioned it a couple of times yeah okay. that um i'm teaching hustlers because i think that it's so it's so smart about like what is exchangeable like what's considered that um what's like what exceeds commodification um the relationship between the two central characters for example but uh yeah like i think that the academy they value certain things and not other things like this incel fever dream for them was much more valuable than like a kind of nuanced take of like the representations of women's bodies on screen as like an image commodity uh anyway yeah no, hustlers was robbed and uh, j-lo was also robbed <laughs> j-lo was robbed i believe uh, as well the safety brothers were robbed um and uh, uh meaning also i don't know actually i don't know if one of tricks point never who did the soundtrack to uh, uncut gems got a nomination for best soundtrack but it is unbelievable also, go and check out One Tricks Point Never. Anything he's released is absolutely fantastic. Um, and uh, I did try and watch uh, Uncut Gems the other day, but the way I was... <laughs> I had to stop watching it because uh, the uh, DVD broke. Yes, I was watching it's it. Watching it's been it. released on DVD and oh. is available to purchase. <laughs> uh, uh, yes. 
Joining me now is Professor Robert Smith, who teaches history and classics at the University of Alberta here in Edmonton. Robert also earned his PhD in history and philosophy at Cambridge in 1979. He was also chair of the Space History Department of the Smithsonian Institution's National Air and Space Museum in Washington, D.C. He's been the Lindbergh Chair of Aerospace History at the Smithsonian Institution and a Fellow of the National Humanities Centre, as well as a McCalla Professor and Killam Annual Professor at the University of Alberta. In 2016, he won the Faculty of Arts Award for Full Professors for Excellence in Research. On top of all that, Robert has also nurtured his own interest in science and technology from the late 18th century to today, and as well as a history of astronomy and history of spaceflight enthusiast, he's also taught a course on the history of the debate surrounding the existence of extraterrestrial life, which goes some way to explaining one of his current endeavours, and that is curating a season of films at Metro entitled Bring On the Extraterrestrials. The season started last year with James Cameron's 1986 classic Aliens and continued with Jonathan Glazer's excellent Under the Skin. Now he's back again with one of my favourite films for the last decade in Denis Villeneuve's Arrival. So, Robert, welcome. Thanks very much. Pleased to be here. Thank you very much. Uh, so, but first of all, can you tell me a little bit about how you devised the series and perhaps about the uh, some of the central themes that bind it all together? The series really sprang out of the fact that, um, as you mentioned, I've been teaching a course at the university on the history of extraterrestrial life and that is um, a course that actually starts back in antiquity this is a surprise to people that there were thinkers considering other worlds and then could these other worlds be inhabited all the way back thousands of years and so I at the end of that course the first time I taught it I thought well let's get some popular culture in here let's broaden things out and so I uh, decided we would look at the 1953 War of the Worlds movie which I think is a classic and um, it was basically going from there and thinking beyond War of the Worlds in 1953 and thinking well what are the other movies where there are extraterrestrials how have different people brought different kinds of sensibilities to thinking about extraterrestrials and seeing how there's been this evolution of treating extraterrestrials over time. Initially they show up and so everybody starts to shoot at them fundamentally. (laughs) And so here in Arrival, for example, it looks for a moment as if maybe people are going to start shooting at them, but they don't and they're thinking much more about establishing contact and there are all sorts of issues around communication and so on that are basically absent in some of the uh, earlier kinds of science fiction movies from the 1950s. And so it was really a development of the course and how I could push the course, how I could engage the students that led me to think more broadly about film and extraterrestrials and how they've been treated over different periods and why they were treated differently at different periods. Yeah, I think of certainly of the, f- of the three films that you've shown so far, this is the one that delves furthest into the why. Obviously, with uh, Aliens, there really is no why. It's They're a threat, so attack. Yes. Under the Skin uh, is a much more delicate threat because it seems like it's not threat or attack. It's about she's trying to learn primarily, but that's misunderstood. Yeah, and so th- there... The, uh, she becomes vulnerable when she becomes human. Yes, yeah. And so that, I think, is this very interesting twist where you have the alien making this move to the human and there is a danger for her. Yeah. 
Arrival is uh, is an interesting one for me because at the centre of it, the film is a rumination on the ways in which we communicate. Uh, and the importance of that in terms of how society can move closer together and in a non-self-destructive tra- trajectory, as you said, that there was a, that there is the moment of threat, but it doesn't quite happen. It's based on a short story called Story of Your Life from 1998, written by Ted Chang, who's won a whole host of literary awards yes. throughout his career. And the film is a kind of wonderful expansion on that, generating this beautiful, sprawling narrative about how we perceive the world. Uh, so as I mentioned, the, the, one of the central themes uh, of the film and the book is communication, more specifically linguistics, and uh, delves into the somewhat controversial and largely rejected hypothesis known as uh, linguistic relativity, uh, or uh, the Sapper-Whorf hypothesis, uh, named after Edward Sapper and Benjamin Lee Whorf, who are both linguists but have never co-authored any works. And uh, we spoke briefly before I started recording about our kind of relative understanding of uh, how far into this we right, willing because, to go. But. Yeah, so the film obviously revolves around communicating with these beings mm-hmm. and how would you go about it even. It seems initially as if it's going to be sounds, but then it's stuff that is written, at le- or at least written, in a certain way, mm-hmm. and how to understand that. And so it poses all these questions of cum- communication um, that, well, like the best science fiction, um, it's always about us, not, not the creatures. And so we're getting reflections on us. And so how do we communicate? Mm-hmm. Can we be clear in our communications? Can we make sense of what other people are telling us or other kinds of people are telling us and how we avoid leaping to conclusions about what kind of meaning is being delivered to us when it may be that we're misunderstanding because we don't have the right kind of mental framework to begin to make sense of what somebody or something is trying to communicate to us yeah i I was trying to in trying to make sense of all of this linguistic relativity was i suppose the so the principal claims that the structure of language affects its speaker's worldview or cognition and thus people's perceptions are relative to their spoken language and anyway i could really make sense if it was to think of uh things like kanji which can be uh, which when written down can mean multiple things yes. but not directly necessarily uh, one single word and i think it, if we have in terms of how we understand english if i say i have a dog that's exactly what i would write as well really only the thing that changes yes. is sort of you know grammatical adjustment it's a kind of mirror to humanity in a way, hmm. engaging with the um, extraterrestrials is really a way for us to reflect upon what we are and how we go about our business and our activities and how we construct meaning hmm. about the world and whether if we can't describe some particular emotion properly, how can we communicate that to somebody else? I consider the film quite a, a kind of a pure sci-fi in that respect. Yes. But I like that the Denis Villeneuve has referred to it as dirty sci-fi. And I think that refers back to what you were saying about it mirroring the very human elements of it. It doesn't seem too far into the future or too far-fetched an idea. It yes. feels very grounded. 
Um, and I think that's an important part of what makes Arrival such a thing, such a, an easy thing to relate to. Right. And I think the, the movie is set in the near future. The institutions that we can see, the army, there's university, they're very familiar. But then we move out of the familiar once we get these enormous pods suspended in space. And um, the issue is then what to do about them. And, there, I, and I think also the start, where we see the kind of panic that is set up initially when these pods arrive and we have the 12 of them and they're suspended. Well, what do people do? I mean, how should we go about engaging with these creatures or whatever it is that's inside the pods and so it's raising a set of issues that as we were talking about um before we started that there were these different periods of science fiction where there would have been a very different response from the one that we see in arrival Is this a six-film series? or This is a four-film. This is a four-film. And so we're talking about ending with 2001. Oh, fantastic. Where, again, the idea is, I mean, the, the, for these two, uh, Arrival in 2001, the issue is contact with the aliens. What results? And clearly, uh, Kubrick's take is a kind of cosmic scale where the, the humans... I think, in 2001, are playing a surprisingly small role, and it's the machines, in a way, that dominate 2001, in, in that we have HAL, we have the spaceship that goes out to Jupiter, and the main humans that we see in the central part of the film, they're more machine-like than the machines, in a way, because the astronauts are all, almost totally emotionless. And... Hal has a personality, although he clearly goes off the rails, yeah. right? And so it, it's a vision with machines at the centre, I think, and the transformation of humans through the machines. I think in certain respects it shows its age. The first section with the, um, with the apes, I think anthropologists would have some problems with some of that now. I mean, but the movie's 50 years old. But the rest of it stands up, I think, remarkably well and very, very powerful. I think some of the context was shaped by expectations around the space program because uh, there will be astronauts landing on the moon in 1969, the year after the film was released. And so the uh, particular views on space stations and orbiting space stations and setting up moon bases that now look decidedly optimistic as things turned out. But they are certainly the kinds of things that are still being talked about in terms of long-term exploration of space. And uh, so is this a series that you'd like to return to or would you want to change it to incorporate more of what you teach? Well, of course, it'd be great to have an eight-part series, but four is, is, <laughs> is really good for a start. But it certainly informed my teaching and helped shape my thinking about what kinds of things I would like to do in the course. Um, so I'm hoping that one of my students will help me introduce 2001 when we get to 2001, yeah. uh, for example, as he's been working on a paper to do. 
with the film. So it's stimulating an interest. And so these are not film study students, so these, these are history students, but it is a, a means for them to think about other kinds of sources that they should be using in their accounts beyond the usual kind of written sources where they would go to newspapers, magazines. There's a lot to be done with with the films in themselves as well. I think that just about covers all the things we need to cover, unless there's something else that you'd like to add. Come and watch the movie. It's spectacular on a big screen. You, you just can't catch everything through Netflix or on TV. It really, really benefits from a big screen. Wednesday the 5th at 7pm and I trust there'll be an introduction. I hope it does well. I'd like to have a Bring on the Extraterrestrials Part 2. Thanks very much. No problem. This episode of Close Up is brought to you by Skirts of Fire, Edmondson's only multidisciplinary arts festival featuring and elevating the work of women. This year's festival is bigger than ever before, with venues in Old Strathcona, downtown Edmonton, and Alberta Avenue. Among the highlights are The Blue Hour, a timely, funny, complicated, and ultimately heartbreaking play set in a small Alberta town circa 1947. That's at the Westbury Theatre in the Arts Barns in Old Strathcona. There's also music, dance, drumming, and performance art all along Alberta Avenue, and much, much more. Skirts of Fire takes place from February 27th to March 8th, and festival passes are on sale now for just $38. That will get you into the Blue Hour, one evening performance at the station on Jasper, and as many by donation events as you like. Get your tickets today at skirtsoffire.com. What else is next? Oh, Jimmy Neutron. <laughs> Jimmy Neutron's next. Has anyone seen Jimmy Neutron? Yeah, okay, Jimmy Neutron. <laughs> Boy genius. Boy Genius is one of those childhood classics that you watch when you're six or seven years old. Okay, maybe this is age-specific to me and not everyone else at the table, but it's just, it's so, like, grotesquely beautiful in its, like, childhood evocations that I can't, I can't but love it. When you say that, grotesquely beautiful, you make me think of Ren and Stimpy. Is it like that? Is it like Ren and Stimpy? I don't think it's actually grotesque in any way. Okay. It's just, like, the fact that I love it's as much as I do nostalgically is like unacceptable. That's fair. It sounds like a guilty pleasure. Jimmy Neutron, Boy Genius, Saturday the 8th. If you want to talk about childhood movies, The Secret of Nim on February 1st is from my childhood. Oh, Secret of Nim? When's yeah. that from? I oh, know the name. Where? When? 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 I feel like that's an old film. It's, I think it was made in maybe the late yeah. 80s. I watched it when I was a kid. Okay. I think right. it was made in the late 80s. You know, this widowed mouse has a really sick child and has to go to the rats to, <laughs> that uh, who are super smart because of science experiments and stuff that they escaped from. Anyways, there's a really terrifying owl in it when you're like five years old. And terrifying owl? Yeah. He's got like Ooh. glowing eyes and predator. creepy feet, you know. Anyway. Like the predator? Like yes, a predator. <laughs> oh right, as, as owls are, as owls are two mice. Yeah. And uh, he has a little gun on his shoulder. That, anyways, yeah. I don't know. It's just it's a movie from my childhood mm. that I still, in fact, have on VHS. In an awful set, let Sharma. Let's just talk. About that. <laughs> <laughs> this is the next in your series, working hard, hardly working. Yeah, so The Red Desert is um, an Antonioni film from 64, and it is very beautiful, so I'm really excited to show it at Metro. And it's pretty different from the other two, like we showed Tangerine and 24 City, which are maybe more explicit about labor. Um, This movie is about uh, a woman... uh, 
I think her name is Ju- Juliana, um, played by the beautiful uh, Monica Vitti. Mm-hmm. And it's more about kind of industrialization and alienation, machines and like desire, but the sort of like mechanics of desire that everything is kind of uh, reduced to like, it's like mechanical, you know, exchangeable sort of elements. It's like alienation and like really beautiful cinematography mm-hmm. and Monica Vitti is really beautiful. So that's... Uh, Good reason to see it. It's so yeah. It was it was Antonio's uh, Antonioni's first color film, as well. But it, it, he says that it is a celebration of the beauty of the industrial landscape, and I think some uh, great lengths were gone to to um, to literally paint landscape. So that it is like I said, it's an industrial landscape, but to make it look more industrial, more faded, and more kind of like you know um, dilapidated. It's like a terrible beauty because mm. of like you know the effects. It's on, like, grotesquely beautiful. <laughs> it's grotesquely beautiful, yeah. um, or to, beautifully grotesque. Yeah. But, yeah. It's also uh, so. Uh, I was reading about this earlier, and um, Richard Harris uh, was uh, he walked off the film, and it had to be finished with an extra all shot from behind. Really? <laughs> because he punched Antonioni in the face. Um, Richard Harris story. was a troubled, uh, a troubled, difficult man. But he was in another film that actually might fit your series uh, in Lindsay Anderson's *This Sporting Life*, oh. as well, which is a kind of vivid depiction of kitchen sink realism and squalor. Um, but uh, yeah, apparently Harris took uh, LSD for the first time while making the film on the set. Yep. Jeez. The uh, the punching in the face story was from David Hemmings, who was later in Antonioni's *Blow Up*. Great film. Everything in circles today. Yeah. <laughs> Much like Arrival. Much like Arrival. <laughs> On the topic of Red Desert, uh, I think I agree. You know, I think this is definitely surprisingly an experimental tangent from Antonioni's films that came before it, his trilogy of alienation or trilogy of incommunicability of whatever it's called. Um, but yeah, I think this is like maybe my personal favorite Antonioni film. Um, the like formal experimentation is so outrageously intriguing most notably i would say the soundtrack in which there's sort of like all these weird electronic sparky noises that just invade the diegesis and there's like this total collapse of like a diegetic non-diegetic distinction and everything just like goes crazy and it's amazing and there's yeah. a lot of that in Tarkovsky as well i really enjoyed there's a brilliant moment in solaris actually where it's a he's just driving and it sort of pans out and you just hear the sound of computers just like creeping into this this temporal space. It's absolutely fantastic. Funnily enough, I think Tarkovsky famously lamented that this film should have been in black and white because apparently who needs the red in Red Desert? Yeah. No, he did He did say that. That's, quite, that's kind of weird and interesting. Uh, my favourite Antonioni film is Zabriskie Point, the, which I believe were, it came out like 1970, I want to say. Something like that, yeah. But in a completely different way, the soundtrack is just off the chart. It's amazing. And it's my favourite music by most of the people that did it, whose other music I'm really not a fan of <laughs> at all. <laughs> I don't really care much about Pink Floyd or The Grateful Dead, but uh, all of those artists did a wonderful job. Anyway, there you go. Um, Red Desert. Yeah, it also features like, you sort of, you trudge through this miserable, grotesquely beautiful industrial area and then sort of three quarters of the way through this film, there's like this glorious fantasy beach sequence, which is just like astonishing. 
and uh, yeah, I don't know. This is just like a great film. Well, you, you got to come and see it. Yeah. You got to, you got to come see it. Yeah, you working see it. hard, hardly working. Exactly. Uh, and are you going to be introducing this one, Shama? Or uh, yeah, like Beth and I will do some kind of introduction. But yeah, yeah. Fantastic. Uh, Tuesday the eleventh. Oh, and I'll write an article about it before that. I'll be released on Parisons. Yeah, in advance of the film. Well, there you go. There you I go. Like that. The Edmonton Community Foundation acts as a bridge between donors and charities to create a strong, vibrant community for generations to come. You can start an endowment fund yourself or with a group. Once it reaches $10,000, it can start distributing funds. Vital Signs is an annual checkup conducted by Edmonton Community Foundation in partnership with Edmonton Social Planning Council to measure how the community is doing. This year's focus is on arts, philanthropy, green spaces, and sport and recreation. Learn more at ecfoundation.org. talk about personal problems um well well before we get to there we'll go to uh so tuesday 18th at seven we have uh the next in gh luma's seven deadly sins series that obscure object of desire uh which was the final film from louis benwell made in 1977 and starring fernando ray uh carol bouquet uh who also played melina havelock in for your eyes only that's a james bond film um angela melina and julian berteau it's based on Pierre-Louis' novel from 1898 called The Woman and the Puppet and it tells the story of aging Frenchman Mathieu who recounts a romance from earlier in his life with, uh, with an impoverished beautiful flamenco dancer from Seville named Conchita. Uh, it's also set against the backdrop of terrorist insurgency but it primarily focuses on, on, focuses on the often quixotic nature of love and lust. I stole that from Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> Um, so yeah, it's certainly a befitting compliment to Mr. Luma's Seven Deadly Sin series. Um, but yes, Bunwell does seem to have a particular fondness for casting incredibly beautiful women, <laughs> so much so that his last film stars two women playing the same role. Um, and I can't help but wonder how much of the film is a direct reflection of uh, his own desires as an elderly man. We were talking about this earlier, Will. We were. We were talking about the way in which this film functions as basically like a self-reflexive autobiographical account where there's like an older gentleman who is sort of retelling the story of how he met a particular person that he had sort of like a attraction to which you know seems like the perfect culmination in a sort of weird way of like Bunuel's whole filmography which is largely just a look at the fraught ways in which desire seems to affect people that story has been told so many times it's like we were talking about barriers of entry for women and like the oscars are whatever stupid just marketing for the film industry but like it is true it is like symptomatic that like women even greta gerwig who is so much what the academy would like like she's white she has this like pedigree of like other celebrated films it's a literary adaptation she wasn't nominated Mm -hmm. for best director um but I mean, I like Bunuel, or at least a decade ago, I was uh, I dated this film philosopher for a couple of years, and we just watched all of Bunuel, and I remember really liking *Discreet Charms of the Bourgeoisie*. I quite, um, I still quite like that film. It's, it, yeah. it's, uh, and also, um, the, was it is it *The Land Without Bread*? Oh yeah, the documentary, the, <laughs> the documentary in inverted commas, where he kind of uh, staged the death of a goat and a donkey covered it in honey so it gets stung to death by bees 
Um, I feel like maybe I missed that one because I have a thing of not watching movies with animals that get and, uh, injured. I mean, to be fair, I didn't know that was going to happen. when, to I, them, when so I, Yeah. <laughs> I probably vetoed it. <laughs> anyway, that obscure object of desire from uh, the uh, Seven Deadly Sins. And that's on Tuesday the 18th at 7 o'clock. The very next day, on the 19th at 6.30, I hope we're showing two parts. It looks as though we are. We're showing Personal Problems from 1980. Has anyone seen Personal Problems? No. Well, I watched it earlier because it is on uh, uh, an amazing streaming service called Canopy, which uh, everybody should get because it's free. All you need is a library card. Uh, this is, as I watched it earlier, this is an amazing film uh, in two parts, directed by Bill Gunn and written by Ishmael Reed. It's a series of stories uh, about African-American life in uh, New York in 1980, but it's also a mixture of improvisation, real life, and acted performances, which also take place in a, uh, partly in an interview scenario as well. And it kind of cuts back and forth between the kind of interviews, uh, poetry, and then acted out, uh, or, you know, partly acted improvised scenes of, of just people in their lives. It has an amazing performance from Vertime Grosvenor, who's also in Daughters of the Dust, which we showed for... Uh, Hitomi's series, I think, did we? I think so, yeah. Last, last February. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. And everybody else in it is just, is, is ridiculously good. I couldn't believe I'd never heard of it because it immediately struck me as like a very essential piece of cinema. I can't recommend it enough. Uh, very roughly, it follows the lives of married couple Johnny May and Charles Brown, but it also shows m more than that. And it's very candid shots of Harlem cafes, uh, nightclub corners and apartments it's also just a wonderfully creative and full of all kinds of magnificent expression in its characters it's quite unlike anything I've seen although it is kind of reminiscent of the starkness of reality you might find in things like Jeannie Livingston's Paris is Burning uh, a lot of beat cinema it felt kind of beat in a way um, Fred Wiseman documentaries and Hoop Dreams it's not like any of those and none of those are alike either but there's just something addicting about the snapshot conversations and glimpses of life that make it feel enriching in a way that films really are and the fact that so much of it is acted makes it all more incredible it's um, incredibly authentic and I can't recommend it enough so come and see that and uh, then when you're done doing that go and watch it again on Canopy because I seriously I don't know how I'd never heard of it seriously it's an amazing film and the soundtrack is all brilliant as well like it's just it's a brilliant film the wonderful music I speak of was composed by Carmen Moore, and despite my best efforts, it seems that it's never been made available to the public. The film was originally intended to air on public television, but went unseen for many years until Kino Lorber were eventually able to restore the original tapes into its full-length version, so perhaps we will see a soundtrack release at some point, but who knows. Personal Problems is a result of a wonderful collaboration between Ishmael Reed and Bill Gunn, the latter of which also wrote and directed Ganja and Hess, as well as co-writing the screenplay for Hal Ashby's The Landlord. Reed is perhaps the more renowned of the two as a poet, novelist, essayist, songwriter, playwright, editor and publisher whose work often satirises or challenges American political culture. His 1972 novel Mumbo Jumbo is often cited as one of the greatest literary works in Western culture and his texts and lyrics have been performed, composed or set to music by an incredible range of artists including Albert Isler, David Murray, Alan Toussaint, Taj Mahal, Olu Dara, Bobby Womack, Anthony Cox, Carla Bley, Eddie Harris, Little Jimmy Scott and Gregory Porter to name a few. The film utilises what was at the time a relative new medium in videotape and it was conceived as a meta soap opera by the group of artists that pieced it together in Gunn, Reed, Moore, photographer Robert Polidori and all of its cast. As I've said there are vague similarities at best with other more easily categorised films but really personal problems feel so genuinely organic and raw that it defies such a narrow distinction. 
I also haven't mentioned how funny and touching it is in terms of its depiction of people living out their lives, being at work, talking to friends, couples, talking about the things that couples talk about. And for a film made 40 years ago, it still feels like a fresh and invigorating piece of art. When you're done listening to us, why not join hosts Matt Bowes and Erin Fraser for their bi-weekly podcast that explores the wonderful world of Hindi cinema through the lens of two Canadian cinephiles. Take yourself to albertapodcastnetwork.com for more information on this and a whole host of other fantastic podcasts. Along with personal problems, Metro has a couple other films on the roster as part of our Black History Month screenings. Jordan Peele's Us from last year makes a return as part of a co-curatorial screening courtesy of Five Artists, One Love and its curator and producer Darren W. Jordan. After the success of 2017's excellent Get Out, Peel once again reflects on the not-so-hidden truths of America's relationship with its past back at itself. Both films are fastidiously deliberate in the images they show us and both serve as vivid dissections of the manner in which humanity, specifically America, is tearing itself apart. In the case of the latter film, even the title Us, or US if you will, is Peel reminding his audience that it isn't some foreign entity that's to blame for the systemic self-destruction of America but it is itself so I'm talking to Sharma now about us in a bit more detail what did you make of us Sharma? Well, I actually waited a really long time to see it because I thought I would be too scared. <laughs> uh, and it was actually, uh, it was more, there were more like jump scares. It was more relentless um, and it's kind of thrillerness than I had expected maybe too. Because uh, definitely, certainly more so than, than Get Out. Yeah. And much less explicitly about race Yes. Um, than get out, get out where like the villain is kind of liberal white supremacy. This is also a film that's a critique of liberalism, but it's uh, more about class or yeah. maybe racial capitalism than it is about uh, white supremacy explicitly. But uh, yeah, I thought it was I thought it was really smart. Uh, I really thought Lupita Nyong'o was excellent, and just the kind of performance that the Academy would normally like. <laughs> And so, uh, because it's physical, there, you know, it involves like modulating her voice, even like her face, her gestures are different with both of the, the characters that she plays. I mean, I think we can answer the question of why she wasn't nominated. I think Get Out was easy to dissect and it was much more directly, as you say, an attack on white liberal America. And it wasn't difficult to really pick that apart. I think Us is a bit more complex mm -hmm. because it is perhaps aimed more directly uh, in the individual. Well, I think that with Get Out, it's easy to watch Get Out and distance yourself from the Armitages because they're so they're such a caricature yeah. that you know even everyone at that party like you can laugh at it. Even white liberals can watch it and say, "Well, I'm not as bad as those people," right? It makes sense that it was much more popular with us. You know, I think that there's no escape from complicity uh, because if you're watching us, you are probably on the above ground of yes. this way that they're th that they're thinking about about uh, exclusion and you know the academy really loves to reward black performances if they are playing enslaved people or somebody from way in the past so with us i think it was like not as legible because physically it was the performance they liked but it wasn't the kind of performance they usually value in black performers um, no, you're right. I think as well that was another sort of marked difference between that and Get Out was what Us did was it showed us a black family in a mm -hmm. regular context. 
and that is something I don't think a commercial cinema is used to seeing without there being some sort of hidden agenda or historical agenda and I think that was what people found confusing about it as well it was, it was like how are we supposed to understand this and really mm-hmm. you're t- it's supposed to you know cause cause introspection as I said there's nothing that is not deliberate in this film mm-hmm. every single shot has something in it which is designed to sort of cause you to look at yourself it was a critique of the soul of America yeah normal people meaning like the default position of like middle class went to good schools still wear their sweatshirts from their schools yeah. and stuff right like have a nice nice like cabin to get away to go to the beach that kind of stuff um yeah of course the title us means all of us yes exactly (laughs) like yeah there's no escape from that complicity but i think that we're at this moment where liberalism is like done like the accumulation that like wealth accumulation that has fueled it this is kind of true globally as you see like right-wing populisms uh spring up um you know even in canada though like our wealth is has insulated us for another election cycle but like we'll see what happens right mm-hmm. and so culture is sort of grappling with this what does it mean to like cling to liberalism cling to this idea of like individual freedom and accumulation you know under capitalism and what us does really well is show it like metaphorizes this and spatializes it with the underground that for every kind of like freedom that you enjoy there is exploitation and that's of course from the founding of america the declaration of independence calls indigenous people like merciless indian savages that is in the declaration of independence so it's really foundational but it's something that is continuously disavowed and us kind of spatializing it that way is I think very threatening in a way that Get Out is less threatening because of course like I loved Get Out but like as I said you can distance yourself from Get Out there's no distancing even you know having the the main family be like a kind of black bourgeois family mm-hmm. is like even you know people who are racialized not as white are complicit in this and so it is all of us Again, there was a couple of points in in Get Out that I thought, you know, he really could have pushed the envelope a little bit, particularly the character that was blind, uh, played by Stephen Root, Uh who comes up with a line, I just want to know what it's like to see through your eyes. Uh Uh, And you couldn't really surmise the appropriation of the black experience Uh much better than that. Uh, But again, it's, it's almost as though that's an argument that's been happening and is still happening for much longer than hang on a minute we're all <laughs> terrible here <laughs> you need yeah, to- <laughs> i mean you can do all of this kind of, like there is no escape from this like no. you can do all the activism you want but even just like be having like citizenship of a settler colonial state is part of reproducing the settler colonial state so um yeah we are all complicit in this which is why you know there's like there's no kind of like purity test for you know being an activist or stuff like or they can't there can't be Mm. but i think us i don't know it was like packaged in this thriller right like there's a twist and like that kind of thing where like it's still really fun to watch like get out of course like the politics of it aren't super complex but i think that it does it in a really really good way like all of the gestures about sight the way that like race is not like written on the body right because there are all of these like inhabitations of various you know black people's bodies i like both of them i think us is is the more threatening film no absolutely (laughs) 
I mean, I think Jordan Peele is a master of genre and mm. kind of messing around with the genre. So, like, I'm a huge fan of Key and Peele. <laughs> and so what they do in that show is so brilliant because they, each sketch is like a kind of revision, subversion, perversion of, like, various genres, like detective, romance, buddy. Like, they're, they, you know, they do all... Like gangster or whatever. Like I, lo- I love Kim Peel. Um, and so wait, with, when you see Get Out, I mean Get Out is also masterful in its its genre because in the end you don't actually want a film like this to be about black social death and incarceration. I actually think the ending of it is quite brilliant because it doesn't do okay now all of the black people go to prison. I loved Get Out. I only saw Us once. Like I've taught Get Out in in like English classes, but yeah, I've only seen Us once, but I I think it's uh I think that people don't know what to make of it. They want True. it to be, they want to be able to pull apart race and class. Yes. And you see this kind of bad, um, like bad readings of identity, which is not the same as like the historical construction of identity politics. But they're like, now we're talking about race. Now we're talking about class. Maybe sometimes we're talking about gender. Whereas really, <laughs> these things are co-constituted and historically grounded. And I think that like us is like, where are you going to separate race and class here? Yeah. So it's also like gets to questions. I think that like liberal culture doesn't really want to deal with. <laughs> so. And I think I think that is what makes Jordan Peele such an important filmmaker because he's uh, incredibly eloquent at being able to deal with such a complex issue as, as as class and race together and uh, the ways they sort of merge and blend and it isn't easy to pick apart and to sort of you know fall on one side or the other or distance yourself from it as you say with get out where you can say well that's not me they're talking about yeah um and uh yeah i'm excited to see what he does next but yeah as i say i think yeah. us is going to be one to be remembered in decades to come for academics <laughs> yeah for sure yeah uh all right sharma well thank you so much for for talking with me great yeah awesome so that is us on thursday the 6th at 9 30 in addition to that we are the roots black settlers and their experiences of discrimination on the canadian prairies it tells the story of a wave of african-american immigrants who moved to alberta and saskatchewan between 1905 and 1912 to escape racism and persecution in the united states Taking advantage of Canada's offer of 160 acres of land for a $10 fee, 1,000 to 1,500 individuals moved to the prairies and helped develop several settlements throughout the provinces. Through the stories of 19 descendants of the original settlers, We Are The Roots focuses on the experiences of discrimination these individuals encountered while living in the rural communities and in Edmonton. This one will be screening on Monday the 17th at 3.30, so be sure not to miss it. And we also have the stand-up special from Richard Pryor, Live on Sunset Strip, based on Pryor's 1982 Grammy award-winning album of the same name. It features Pryor candidly discussing his drug addiction, as well as the night he caught on fire while freebasing cocaine, so you probably don't want to miss that either, on Monday the 24th at 9.30. Other things to look out for are Mean Girls, screening as part of the always fabulously sinister homicidal on Sunday the 16th at 9pm. Lacey Page and Dead Femme return with Lynn Ramsey's 2011 We Need to Talk About Kevin, adapted from Lionel Shriver's novel of the same name. That is on Thursday the 27th at 930 we also have the next in Sylvia Douglas's Kink on Screen series in Atome Goyan's Exotica from 1994 on Sunday the 23rd at 9.30 and Werner Herzog's Nomad in the Footsteps of Bruce Chatwin, which is a new release on Thursday the 20th at 9.30 in which the director chronicles the life of British travel writer and also details their own friendship and collaboration over the years. And apart from that, 
go to metrocinema.org and find out more details of all of the things that we are showing. Thank you, William. Thanks, Owen. Thank you, Talisha. Thanks. Thank you, Sharma. Thank you. And I'm going to thank myself. Well done. Excellent. <laughs> see you next time. We'll see you in the lobby. <laughs>